course, Jews mourn the Roman destruction and the Babylonian destruction. But part of our remembrance of the event also involves a painstaking clinging to the very details of what Jerusalem looked like and what the temple looked like. And thereby, in the very midst of mourning, the temple is kept alive in Jewish hearts. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 174, Remembering the Temple, the Artists versus the Jews. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. Let us begin today by studying a 19th century depiction of the destruction of Jerusalem by the artist David Roberts. Roberts was of Scottish origin, and in the 1830s he set out for the Middle East, capitalizing on a tremendous British interest in the area and a desire for scenes of it. Roberts' original painting has been lost, but one early lithograph is now owned by the Yeshiva University Museum. It is a striking depiction, though, as Richard McBee notes in an excellent article, the placement of Titus's troops in the Kidron Valley at this moment of the attack is somewhat implausible. But I would like to emphasize an aspect of the painting that is often not pronounced upon. Rogers has clearly read and studied aspects of the layout of the larger Temple Mount, but his depiction of the actual temple is entirely inaccurate. It's very small in the painting, but even at first glance, you can see that the building he has given us is pagan in architectural effect, Greek or Roman. And when we look closely, you see that Roberts has given us as the temple, the Pantheon of Rome, called the Pantheon perhaps, because it was dedicated not to a particular pagan divine, but to all the Roman gods. Now, nothing more marked the difference between Rome and Jerusalem than the Jewish insistence that there was only one God who wished to be worshipped and sacrificed to in one specific location. There could be no more different structures in intention than the temple in Jerusalem and the Pantheon of Rome. And all archaeological evidence we now know today indicates that architecturally, they were not at all alike. Interestingly, when we study other portrayals of the destruction, we see that this motif was not unique to Roberts. Thus, in another painting by Francisco Hayes, which we have also sent to you, and also written about by McBee, we are brought by the artist into the temple complex itself. The focal point of the scene is the courtyard outside the temple building, what Jewish tradition calls the Azara. There, the altar could be found. And Hayez, in this 1867 work, gives us a visual imagining of a scene described by Josephus at the very moment that the Roman troops stormed the Temple Mount in 70 CE. Josephus wrote, As for a great part of the people, they were weakened without arms and had their throats cut wherever they were caught. Now round about the altar lay dead bodies heaped one upon another, as at the steps going up to it ran a great quantity of their blood whither also the dead bodies that were slain above fell down, end quote. Thus, Hayez gives us his depiction of the second temple. Now note that at least this version of the translation of Josephus, which Hayez himself parallels, references steps on the altar, which there surely was not. Only a ramp was allowed. But be that as it may, what Hayez gives us may well be what the horrible scene looked like when it occurred, as far as the slaughter on the altar is concerned. But again, if you look at the background, What Hayez gives us as the temple is surely not the temple. Hayez gives us the pantheon, or something like it. Here again is another 19th century depiction of the temple in Jerusalem, but with the wrong building. What this reveals is that the artists are focused on some aspects of the Jerusalem story, but not others. Whatever their motives, they are interested not in the edifice that was the temple itself, but rather the sweep of the assault on Jerusalem and the brutal defeat of the Jews. The Jewish people, in contrast, approached the temple throughout its history in a very different way. The approach the Jews adopted parallels that of Ezekiel, and this, in turn, allows us to explain why the destruction of the temple 
did not destroy the Jewish people itself. The final chapters of Ezekiel, describing a revelation that occurs after the temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed, depict the vision of the temple when it is rebuilt. The prophet is taken by God to Jerusalem, and a mysterious figure escorts Ezekiel throughout the structure, and he describes the temple with the ultimate exactitude. The opening of chapter 41 is only one example of chapter after chapter, passage after passage of measurements. Verse 1. Afterward, he brought me to the sanctuary and measured the posts, six cubits broad on the one side and six cubits broad on the other side, which was the breadth of the hall. And the breadth of the door was ten cubits, and the size of the door were five cubits on the one side and five cubits on the other side. And he measured the length thereof, forty cubits, and the breadth, twenty cubits. Then he went inward and measured the post of the door two cubits and the door six cubits and the breadth of the door seven cubits. So he measured the length thereof twenty cubits and the breadth twenty cubits before the sanctuary. And he said unto me, This is the Holy of Holies. After he measured the wall of the house six cubits and the breadth of every side four cubits, round about the house on every side. There are many verses like this, ladies and gentlemen. This is just to give a picture of the focus on creating a blueprint. Now, what is interesting is that when the Jews did indeed return after 70 years of exile from Babel to the Holy Land, and the second temple was built, it did not accord with the dimensions that Ezekiel gives us here, nor when the temple was ultimately redone by Herod into an incredible edifice, was it structured precisely according to Ezekiel's blueprint. Ezekiel's prophecy of the temple that he foresaw has not yet been fulfilled. This, apparently, because, as we shall see when we study later biblical books, only a minute percentage of Israelites ascended from Babel to Jerusalem. And therefore, according to Jewish tradition, what Ezekiel describes did not come to pass yet. And therefore, for Judaism, many of the prophecies of the temple's future glory will only be fulfilled in the time to come, when the temple will be forever established. And then prophecies such as Ezekiel's in chapter 43, verse 5, will be fulfilled. So the Spirit took me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. And I heard him speaking unto me out of the house, and the man stood by me. And he said unto me, Son of man, the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. Thus Ezekiel's vision will, we believe, come true one day. It serves as the blueprint not for the second temple, but rather for the third that is yet to be. But the prophet's words also ended up inspiring the Jewish people to imitate him. Because if Ezekiel, immediately after the destruction of the temple, is able to visualize a temple, Jews reacted to the destruction of the temple in a similar way, remembering every detail about it, visualizing it in their minds, and keeping it alive thereby in their hearts. We are now able to understand how the traditional Jewish response to the destruction of the temple was so profoundly different from that of the non-Jewish world in general and from Western artists in particular. We might say that as our ancestors saw it, our obligation was to ensure that we never ever confuse our temple with any other, that we never come close to confusing it with the pantheon, that we never forget what the magnificent Mikdash, the extraordinary edifice in Jerusalem, looked like. Of course, Jews mourn the Roman destruction and the Babylonian destruction, but part of our remembrance of the event also involves a painstaking clinging to the very details of what Jerusalem looked like and what the temple looked like. And thereby, in the very midst of mourning, the temple is kept alive in Jewish hearts. Rabbi Chaim of Volozhin once took note of the strange grammatical choice in the Talmudic statement. Kol hamitabel al churban beit mikdash, all who mourn for the temple, zoche v'ro'e b'simchata, 
merit to see its rejoicing. It does not say, he noted, all those who mourn for Jerusalem in the past, Yizkeh will merit in the future to see the rejoicing of the temple. Rather, it says, all who mourn the temple, Zocheh, merit to see it in the present. But how can this be? If one is in the midst of mourning the temple that is gone, how can one merit at the same time to see the extraordinary edifice for whose absence one is mired in mourning in the first place? The answer seems to be that through Jewish memory, through Jewish mourning, a vision of the temple is kept alive. We bewail that which is physically gone, but we thereby keep alive a vision of it until it is physically restored. We are all called to act like Ezekiel, envisioning the temple in Jerusalem, both that which was and which is yet to be. An imitation of Ezekiel can be found in what is perhaps the most remarkable parallel in rabbinic sources to our own prophetic passages. And that is Masechet Midot, literally tractate measurements, a text utterly unlike almost any other tractate in the Talmud. Most Talmudic works are about law, rituals, but this tractate is about architecture. It describes bit by bit, room by room, gate by gate, the layout of the Second Temple. Whether the rabbis are describing the Second Temple pre-Herod or post-Herod is an interesting question. But what we are being given, by and large, in this discussion is not a series of laws or what one does in hypothetical cases. Rather, it is an attempt in words to create an image in one's mind. And here, ladies and gentlemen, is what is even more incredible. This tractate was composed in a rabbinic age many decades after the destruction, illustrating thereby how particular Jews were in preserving the image of the temple in their minds. Not only the generalities, but the midot, the very measurements of the mikdash of the temple. And thus, the rabbinic blueprint of the second temple was studied in the centuries that followed, as was Ezekiel's blueprint of the third temple. Ladies and gentlemen, can you think of any other civilization or people painstakingly recalling or imagining or visualizing every inch of an edifice, even 50 years after it was destroyed, let alone a thousand years? The Talmud is seen often as legalistic, and the very name Tractate Measurements sounds on the face of it incredibly didactic. But can there be a more exquisite embodiment of a people's love affair with a building that crowned a sacred city? Can there be a more extraordinary expression of how a people kept alive a vision of a temple that was, and with Ezekiel's help, continued to envision how that temple would ultimately look in the future? The works of art by Roberts and Hayes are powerful paintings. But what is now revealed to us is that Jews reacted to the destruction very differently. They knew that the destruction was real, but they still kept a vision of the temple alive within themselves. In the 17th century, two very different rabbis were engaged in two very different projects that involved drawings and models of the temple. One was Rabbi Yom Tov Lippmann Heller, who wrote a famous work on Ezekiel's vision of the temple that is yet to be, a work which is studied to this very day. The other is Judah Leon, known as Judah Templo, a rabbi in the Sephardic community in Amsterdam, who built a model of the first temple and published works about it. This model was a sensation, and when during the battle between Charles Stuart and Cromwell, the King of England's wife, Henrietta Maria, came to Amsterdam to sell her jewels to raise funds for her husband's cause, she went to see this model and got to know this rabbi at a time when there were no Jews allowed in England. As the scholar Al Shane put it, quote, Leon must be unique in Jewish history, for there cannot have been many rabbis who became famous, not so much for their learning as for a traveling exhibition or show, which was widely exhibited for many years and which received royal patronage and approval. End quote. As he goes on to describe following the restoration of the Stuart monarchy in England decades later, Leon went to England to teach about the temple. 
Shane writes, quote, It would seem that Leon was sufficiently encouraged by the interest shown in his models by Queen Henrietta Maria to plan a visit to London after the restoration of the royal family for the purpose of exhibiting them there, end quote. The Jewish people exiled from Jerusalem never forgot Jerusalem. And refusing to forget Jerusalem means never forgetting the temple. Always proudly proclaiming what the temple was and what it will be. This is inspired by Ezekiel. The capacity to visualize the temple sustained a bond between God's mountain and God's people, a bond that Babylon and Rome could never destroy. This is Mayor Soloveitchik. Looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.